and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode of Rise of Entrepreneur. I am your host, Albert Shaknazarov, and today we have a very special guest, someone that I have tremendous respect for. He's a true visionary and entrepreneur and a pioneer of athletic uh, footwear with world-known brand called Reebok, Mr. Joe Foster. Joe, thank you so much uh, for being here. It's an honor and pleasure to have you. Albert, thank you. Thank you. It's uh, it's indeed a pleasure, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. So oh, uh, we are we, we are as well. Okay. We are as well. I know we have a lot of people that have requested uh, for you to be on our podcast because of your you know experience and expertise. I see that your book is right behind you. I read the book. That book is yeah. amazing for anybody that's starting their entrepreneurial journey. It shows you how you can start a business from literally nothing to something, to something amazing and something that's been worldwide. So Joe, again, thank you for being on the show today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me over. Absolutely. Joe, can you share the story behind founding of Reebok? What inspired you to start a company and what were some of the early challenges you faced? <laughs> How long have you got, Albert? This is, <laughs> what were the, um inspirations well really inspiration is probably the wrong word necessity need is more like it because uh, in the beginning I, I must take you back to my grandfather mm. my grandfather he uh, he was a visionary I think because he set up his own uh, athletic uh, footwork company JW Foster and Sons and uh, Whilst he didn't register his name, his business until 1900, he made his first pair of shoes in 1895. Wow. Which was a long time ago. And they, they were spike running shoes. And he is credited with inventing the spike running shoe. And uh, if, we, if we go back, he was only 15 years old when he did this. And he got, his, he got the idea from his grandfather. So that's going back a lot longer. And his yeah. grandfather, his grandfather was a cobbler. He repaired shoes. But not only did he repair shoes, he also repaired cricket boots. And cricket boots, crickets have been played in England for many, many years. So way back into the 1850s and 1860s, they were playing cricket. Yes. And my grandfather, he went to his grandfather because he liked the idea of becoming a cobbler. And then he saw him repairing cricket boots. And we we think he asked him, why do they have spikes in the bottom of cricket boots? And we assumed the answer to that was because it gives them grip. Mm -hmm. They need it when they're playing on the field on grass. They need grip. So with that idea in mind, my grandfather being a, an athlete, not a very good athlete, but he enjoyed running, he decided, he thought, well, if I put some spikes in the bottom of a nice lightweight running shoe, that will give me more traction on a cinder track or on grass. And it did. And so that was the start of his business. Wow. So by 1904, he had world records. He had three world records in his shoes. By 1908, he had two gold medals at the London Olympics. So he knew what influencing was. Yes. In his business, he, he gave the shoes to leading runners. And that's how he became famous. Uh, the, the, the sort of second uh, 
decade of uh, the 20th century was World War I. Nobody wanted running shoes in World War I, so they repaired army boots. However, at the end of that, in the 1920s, that was my grandfather's decade. In that, uh, in that decade, he had so many uh, people wearing his shoes. In fact, we, we have a letterhead which quotes him as supplying all the Olympic athletes in, the, in 1920, which is incredible. I think it was in Stockholm, but all Olympic athletes. Okay, in those days, it was only track and field. We didn't wow. have the, the amount of sports that we have now. But track and field, pretty good. He also supplied the, uh, the athletes, um, Harold Abraham, Eric Little, and uh, Lord uh, Burley. They were three athletes who won gold medals in the 1920s, but they were immortalized in the film Chariots of Fire. Mm. That was a film about those three athletes. Well, they won their gold medals in my grandfather's shoes. Yeah. So that's how famous he was. However, he died in 1933, mm -hmm. and I wasn't born until 1935. But I was 15 months after he died, I was born on his birthday. So, wow. <laughs> so I got his uh, name. He was Joseph William. I am Joseph William. In fact, the whole family are J.W. Foster. As I said, my, my grandfather was Joseph William. My uncle was John William, my father was James William, and my brother was Jeffrey William. Yeah, so yeah. we're all JWs. <laughs> at, but I was born my grandpa's birthday. So my grandmother, my grandmother, well, she obviously thought I was the reincarnation and I, I'd come back as, uh, as a youngster. That's right, I came back. So this is fine, but... Uh, Unfortunately, my father and my uncle, they didn't, they didn't get on. You know, Adi Dassler and Rudy Dassler, they didn't get on either. But Rudy Dassler left the Dassler company and set up Puma, whereas Adi Dassler, he had the Adidas factory. The Fosters didn't do that. My father and uncle just kept fighting. They just wow. kept feuding. And uh, as a result, the company did not progress the way it should have progressed. Um, which is which is a great shame because uh, they produced football boots and training training shoes for most probably ninety five percent of all the uh, top uh, football clubs that exist today soccer clubs I think you would call them in America soccer clubs that exist in the UK big clubs like Manchester United Manchester City Arsenal Liverpool and you can name them all. They supplied those teams. Wow. So, uh, Jeff and myself, we're we are growing up. We're only youngsters. And, uh, of course, I, I was born in 1935. Four years after I am born, we have World War II. Yes. And same as World War I, nobody wants running shoes. They're all wow. just army boots. So, again, they repaired army boots. And it wasn't until 40, 1945, by that time I'm 10 years old, when yes. World War II is over and the lights come on again and we get back to living. Schools open again. We hadn't had schools. Um, it was up to mother to teach us bits and pieces and uh, 
There were a few teachers around, but not many. But we started education then. Okay, so I am 10, and it's a normal life for youngsters at that point. We we still had rationing. We didn't uh, we couldn't go to shops and buy everything we wanted. We still had rationing. For, Joe, for while we're on this topic, I, I want to ask you a question because I think it's very important for everyone to understand because your father and your brother still operating the company during the World War II, correct? My father and uncle. Yes. And yes. We had just in 2020 a pandemic that shut down the entire world. Nobody was working. The whole country was on the pause. How similar is it to World War II? And how, what would you say kept your father and uncle in business during those times? Because a lot of people, they closed their business during COVID and they never uh, went back into business. They actually lost their asset. They lost their business. They had to shut down. Well, what kept them going was the same as World War One. They they took on repairing army boots, so they repaired army boots. They also made sandals. I don't know if you know what sandals are. Yes, you know sandals. Yes, yeah. <laughs> they they made sandals because leather leather was just in very short supply, but uh, they managed to get leather. A small amount, but it did keep them going. They were not a, a big factory. They were only small. And I think possibly because of being small, that helped during the war. They were able to keep going, keep things uh, things moving, and certainly repairing army boots, that, that kept them alive. So you're talking about another, another five, well, 1939 when the war started, so it was six years, they had to, uh, they had to work at uh, repairing I, I, I guess they probably repaired regular shoes as well for people. So they, they turn into uh, cobblers as against shoemakers. Gotcha. Uh, certainly as athletic shoemakers, because there was no real demand at all for athletic shoes. Uh, right. that w- they would have never survived with that. Understood. So, so after, after World War II, uh, the business uh, set up again. And they were they were doing okay, and the reason they were doing okay is that my grandmother, my grandmother was sort of in charge, as it were. Mm. She was in charge of the company, and she kept them together. However, when I'm eighteen, well, when I'm seventeen, I actually, I did started work at the factory at the uh, J.W. Foster's. I'd been to college, and I had one year working in the in the factory until I was 18. At 18, we had national service. That was that was something that um, after after World War II, every every boy had to do two years in the forces. Yeah. Do two years of national service. We we had to do that. It was compulsory. And I went in the Air Force and my brother had been deferred. He's, he was older than me. He was two years older than me, but he, he didn't go in until he was 21. So he went in about nine months after I, I went to do national service. However, national service, you know, it's, it's a bit possibly like going to university or college. You, you, you're away from the family. Mother's not there making the meals. She's not yeah. there in the washing, doing, looking after you. Yeah. And you start to look after yourself. So you, you, 
you'd learn a little bit. You learn that self-sufficiency, that, uh, mm-hmm. well, I need to do something, so you learn how to do that. That's fine. And uh, after two years, coming back to the factory, we came back, Jeff came back slightly after me, but what we found was a failing company because while we had been away, my grandmother died. And at that point, there was nobody then to keep my father and uncle sane together, wow. looking after the business. So when we came back, uh, it was a failing company. Father and uncle, in fact, Jeff and I, on a number of occasions, had to pull them apart because we're fighting. And uh, even to this day, I don't know what what their argument was. Right. But it, but it didn't do the company any good. <clears throat> so the company was going down. So even and, though you had your grandfather built such an impressive, iconic company where he had gold medalist wearing your shoe, to when the company was passed to your father and your uncle, it became a failing company. What would you say was the number one reason? Is because they were fighting, right? But how how would you describe that in today's world? in business like what what principle is it is it when you don't have good uh collaboration when you don't have good leadership what what would that come down to well that, that would come down to the fact that uh in any business you you need to be able to look at uh what where your business is going what are your aims what what is your future and i think if you if people are not talking together and they're they were 50 50 they owned half of the business piece so Nobody could make a decision and do anything. You know, if somebody wanted to do something and the other one said no, then there was nowhere to go. So there was yeah. no there was no drive in the company. I mean, unfortunately, all that happened was they just repeated what they've been doing for the last twenty years, and they were making the same shoes, the same product. Well, they were not moving forward. Wow. They were not looking at what is next. Where do we go? And uh, when I came back from uh, doing my national service and very shortly after that, I said to my father, look, the company is failing. You know, we, we need to do different things. We need to do, we need to get some marketing. We need to get some salesmen. We need to do, we, we, need, we need to look worth for the future. Yeah. Uh, all my father could say is, uh, look, Joe, when your uncle's gone and I am gone, you can do what you like with this company. Wow. And, and I'm saying, but dad, number one, we don't want you to go. That is that is not a plan. That's not part of the right. plan. But, but before you go, this company will be dead long, long before you go because it's dying now. Uh, it didn't make any difference. He just wouldn't listen. What were the indicators, Joe? that made you come back and make it so obvious for you to see that the company was dying or the employees complaining was the customers complaining like what were the indicators besides the fact that you know your father and uncle are arguing but how did you know that it was a failing company well what we could see is that um so so many retailers, there were a lot of sports goods retailers in those days, just sports shops, normal sports shops. They yeah. sold everything. They sold everything, and that included football boots uh, or soccer boots, as you would say today, um, and athletic uh, shoes as well. 
Um, what we could see is that uh, the number of shoes that we were selling was dropping. We were slowly going down. We, they had a, a very good business for mail order. So buy the mail or uh, as, as we do today, you can now buy a, a lot of products online. In, in those days, they used to receive orders through the post. Mm. So post. They had self-measurement forms where the, if somebody inquired for the, uh, we'll say, in, inquired for the uh, catalog, they would send a catalog and, and, and a, and a self-measurement form. And people who wanted to buy the Foster product would um, would sort of measure the foot on the self-measurement form, would draw around the foot, and they would send that in, and they'd also send money in. So yep. money would come that way. And a lot of retailers would also buy for schools, and, and that was going slowly, that was drifting away. Other, other manufacturers were coming in. Other manufacturers were selling. But... Fosters relied upon people coming to them. They didn't wow. get up and go and yep. find a business. They were relying on on the business just coming in through the door. Uh, and, of course, slowly but slowly, that was just fading away. It was wow. going less and less. We we had less and less employees. And yeah, and that was, that was a big, big problem. And Jeff and I, we could see that. And yet... Uh, I, I don't know whether my my father, having gone through two world wars, whether he just just had lost that uh, incentive, just lost all and any idea of what you do in a business, except right. it provided money, it provided what he wanted, and that was enough. Wow. So three things that you guys saw was loss of revenue, the revenue going down, losing the staff, employees, and the third, that the competition was getting heavier and fosters at that point, they were not initiators, they were responders. Those were the indicators why the business was dying. And, yes. and I think it's very important of what you said. You said your father's been through two world wars and maybe that caused him to lose the instinct of being able to want more or go after more and it made him complacent in a way. Am I correct? I think I think that probably is where we're at. But I also think not not only that, the fact that there were two brothers and they owned the business 50-50, they could yep. do nothing. I, I think it was a matter of they gave up on each other. Wow. They gave up talking to each other. They gave up on any idea that uh, you had to do something different. You had to build a business. They, the business was just surviving, and it was surviving less and less, and that wow. was that was the problem. And that was a problem that Jeff and I saw. So when you asked me the question, what was the uh, incentive, or you know, what did, what were you thinking of when you set up Reebok? Necessity. <laughs> we could see there would be no business. So the alternative for us was to find a job, go and work somewhere else for somebody else, or why didn't we uh, set up the business? We we knew quite a bit about the business. We knew what we knew off the factory floor. But that's all we knew. So shortly after we came back to the business, after doing our national service, we decided to go to college at night. 
So we did night college, we did night school, as they called it in those days. And for two years, we, we went to college. We went to a footwear college to learn about making shoes. Wow. But what we, what we gained from that was not just the fact that we did learn a bit more about making shoes, because all we knew was how to make running shoes and some rugby boots. What we did do, we picked up a lot of friends. We we made a lot of acquaintances. The people who were there, they could tell us where could we get machinery from, where could we get materials from. We had a source of uh, information. And, and, and I think if anybody is starting off uh, in any business today, they should know where to get the information. They should be able to go somewhere, go to people who know the job, who know everything, or know a lot of basics. It's, they knew the basics. They knew how to make patterns for a shoe, yeah. where to get your materials from, what machinery you need, what could help. So that was so important to us to do that, uh, that uh, night school, to that college, to go to college and, and learn so much. And that was good because when we did decide that this is the day we should leave the foster family, we had a lot of help. Now, you and your brother had a complete opposite relationship from your father and your uncle. What nurtured that relationship? Because you were growing up and usually people do what they see. And what you saw is that your father and your uncle were arguing constantly, fighting with each other. Why did you and your brother end up having a complete different relationship that was more of a collaboration, teamwork, love, support, and agreement? One thing that you guys had is that both of you were in agreement and alignment to go out there and go to college together, go through the service together, and go and open up Reebok together. Well, I, I guess there was only two years between Jeff and myself, as against five years between my father and uncle. <clears throat> but we had seen we had seen that. <laughs> we brought up with it. You've got to get on together, and we 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 got on okay. We didn't um, we didn't socialize together that much. We had our own friends, but we did recognize the fact that uh, if we were going to set up our own factory, our own business, what we needed was to work, be able to work together. And the the good thing about that is that uh, probably I was a bit more outgoing than Jeff. I mm. was a bit more. Uh, interested in um, in growing, developing a business. Jeff loved the factory. Okay, he just loved the factory. And when we set up our factory, we came to an arrangement fairly quickly because I I really didn't like making shoes. It was <clears throat> too repetitive for me. You, wow. you did the same thing just uh, so <clears throat> we came to an, an arrangement. And Jeff said, "I'll look after the factory, Joe. You do everything else." And everything else meant marketing, whatever it took yeah. to, uh, to to run the business. In fact, it was really to find the pulse, to find the pulse of the business. How does the heart beat? What makes it grow? And so I was much more interested in that side, and, and Jeff just wanted to do the factory, which was good because we didn't get in each other's way. He yes. just did did what he did in the factory. And I must have made an awful lot of mistakes. I must have done an awful lot of things wrong as I tried to 
Well, in those days, grow the factory. Now it's scale, scale in the business. But you know, you, whatever step you take, it is a risk. It's a bit of a gamble as to, well, should we go this way? Should we go another way? When we set up our business in 1958, Adidas had come into the UK and taken the soccer business. They yes. had the soccer business. They had it. And we looked at that, and it would have cost. It would have cost us. We, we didn't have the money. We didn't have the money to go head-to-head with Adidas. So, wow. so what, we, uh, what we did and what we named uh, it as was white space. We looked for white space. White space was, where, are they, where, where, where can we be that they're not? What can we create that, that they, they're not in that? We're not, we're not head-on, head-to-head comp- competing. We're going to take orienteering. We're going to take cross-country. Those were areas of running. Uh, and, in, and in the north of England, we, were all, we sh- could also go direct to the athletes. We, we, made, we made it our job to uh, become part of the sports scene. We, we became part of the athletic companies. Yeah. They were part of us. So that <clears throat> they didn't look for Adidas. They came to us and they told us what they wanted. And we made what they wanted. And, and that was the difference. We were now working with the people we knew would be our, our customers. Now, Joe, we have a question here from one of the listeners. Um, funny enough, his name is Joe as well. He's asking, did you wait for for foster company to close down to open your own factory or did you just take over? No, we moved out of the factory. We moved six miles away down the road, <clears throat> nearer to the college where we, we'd gone. We went nearer to the college because we knew we knew we could get people to work for us. We were, we were nearer to the college. And shoemaking was near near to that college, about six miles away from Bolton. Uh, we we moved away from the family <clears throat> um, and set up our own business. The Jedwood Foster business continued, but my uncle died about 15 months after we had left, and uh, my father closed the factory just over two years after we had left. Wow. So it, we knew it was dying, and, and that was it. It, it did die. It's... Um, well, in fact, the factory was uh, compulsory purchased. The the local government took over the the buildings because they wanted to build the university there. So yeah. it, it was knocked down. And my father didn't look to buy or to move to another premises. He just closed it down. What was so, the initial response from your father and your uncle when you went out and initially became a competitor? You became another shoe company that was not you know, intentionally competing with them, but you wanted to be able to go and build a business in the shoe industry. Was was the response positive, negative? Was it inviting, welcoming? Well, on the day, which was uh, the last day of the week on a Friday when Jeff and I decided, that's it, we're going now. I, I did go to tell my father in, in the office there at the, at the Foster factory, and I said, we're, we're leaving. He, he must have known, although he uh, he didn't respond very well. In fact, he picked up a letter opener. Well, a letter opener is like a knife. And he, he came towards me with this, and I'm wondering, oh, 
Dad, what's, what's going on? What's going on? <laughs> he, he turned it around and gave it to me and said, stab me now. And wow. I'm saying, Dad, you know, we, we're just looking after our future. This is nothing to do with you. You know, you don't want to come with us, but we're, we're going. But, uh, and, and that was it. We walked out. I think it took about three years for my father and myself to speak. <laughs> but um, Jeff was still living at home. He was still living with Father. Oh. <laughs> so, so it was very convenient. I got the blame. I got the blame. I, I took yeah. Jeff away from the factory. That was it. Yeah. It was your fault. <laughs> so I got the blame. But uh, my mother could understand why we'd gone. And, yes. and you know, we, we played it uh, very straight. We, we thought, okay, we're all J.W. Foster. We can't set up another factory called J.W. Foster six miles away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we set up our factory and called it Mercury Sports Footwear. Yes. And uh, <clears throat> we also decided that we didn't want to compete in the athletics uh, footwear. What we would do, we would make cycle shoes instead. So we were we were being very straight. We were being very good and not trying to compete with the with the Foster factory and what yeah. they were doing. And and we we developed a good uh, a good trade in the uh, in cycling. We again we we, we had two salesmen. Uh, one one of the salesmen was a young a young cyclist, local young cyclist, <clears throat> who who asked if he could call on all the cycle stores with our shoes and sell them whilst he was out training. So as part of his cycle training, he would take our shoes and go to cycle stores and, and sell our shoes. That was good. Yeah. Great. And we got, we got a lot of business from that. <clears throat> Another one was a man in London, and he, he was a super salesman. I don't know how we picked him up, but he was absolutely superb. And our business just absolutely exploded in cycling. Wow. Suddenly we were, we were making that many cycle shoes. And these orders were coming in from the London area. Incredible. And for about 18 months, our business really, really flourished, really grew. And uh, unfortunately, just one day, the orders stopped coming. No more orders. And yes, we had telephones, but we didn't have mobile phones. Communication was by letter. Right, and right. So we're wondering what had happened. No more orders coming in. And we got a letter from his landlady. He was a Scotsman who'd moved to London, and he was obviously uh, he had a landlady. And she uh, she wrote us a letter and said, uh, "Does Mister oh, I've forgotten his name now. I think it's in the book. But does does he owe you? Uh, do you owe him any, any money? Because he's he's not. <laughs> it's not that he's not paid her. It's just that two weeks ago he died in a car accident." And that was the end of our cycle shoe business. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It died, it died with him. It's incredible. As it happened, because the Foster family, the Foster factory had closed, we had also started moving into athletics and other areas of sports footwear. So our business didn't die altogether, but it did take a, a big knock. But we so had to move. How important it is to build a company that has great salespeople. Because at one point you have this one superstar salesperson 
who's driving all this business. And unfortunately, he passes away and the orders stop coming in. Would you agree with me the the lifeline of a business is sales? I think without doubt. That has to be it. You, yeah. And you have to have a good sales team. I mean, marketing helps the sales team, but you have to have a good sales team. And and in the book, there's a good example of the, another company, a company, again, that we were very much involved in. They've become our distributors. The sales, the head salesman left and took the sales team with him. And within 18 months, that company had gone out of business. Wow. Because he'd taken the whole sales team with him. And uh, yes, sales absolutely important this is one of the points i took up with my father when we came back out of the forces we don't have any salesmen we need to get out there and start selling we need to concentrate on bringing in building building the business uh, so why that, did you choose why did you choose to name the company mercury in the beginning i understand that some people may confuse the word mercury uh with um a chemical but Mercury actually means it's a winged messenger, uh, correct? That's correct. Mercury was a winged messenger, and uh, it indicates speed. And we, we love that logo. We had, we had the winged messenger as our logo, and we love that. That was great. So, you know, I mean, another word for Mercury is Quicksilver, but we, there's already a brand out there called Quicksilver. They followed us. They, I don't think Quicksilver were on the market when we... But Mercury up there. So we became Mercury, and that, that was good. Um, and we, I say we like the wing messenger. Uh, and we're doing well. We're, we're doing very nicely. The company's doing well. And the accountant who uh, was doing our accounts said, Joe, <clears throat> you're doing nicely. You'd better register that name, Mercury. And uh, I'm looking at him and saying, why? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm, we're in our early 20s, you know. <laughs> We don't know this. Making, learning how to make shoes doesn't tell you that you've got to register your name. Yes. Uh, if we'd use J.W. Foster, we wouldn't need to register that because that's our name. However, he said you've got to register your name. And, uh, okay, I understand. Because he said if somebody else thinks also that Mercury is a good name and uh, decides to make some shoes and call them Mercury, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to have a problem. Who owns the name? Mm. You're going to have to prove that it's yours. So get it registered. So I went to see an agent in Manchester. Manchester is our local big town, big city. And uh, he found that Mercury was already pre-registered. Somebody else had the name registered. And that was uh, British Shoe Corporation. And British Shoe Corporation is a massive corporation. And they they owned all the all the big shoe uh, names. And so we we said, well, what can we do? And right. he said, well, they're not using it. It's a name they've got registered. They've obviously used it in the past, but they're not using it right now. Oh, okay. And he said, I have had a word with them and they will they will sell it to you. Okay. <clears throat> I said, how much do they want? And he said, a thousand pounds. And we're going back to the to 1960. And in 1960, a thousand pounds was a lot of money. And we didn't have that. 
we just set up our factory with 250 pounds that's all it costs to the whole factory all the machinery everything 250 pounds so a thousand pounds out of sight <clears throat> he did say you can take them to court if you want to take them to court because they're not using it you can claim that they're not using it and um i said how much will that cost us and he said well about a thousand pounds so uh, obviously we were not in a position to take them to court and we were not in a position to buy it directly off them. So he said, well, you're going to have to uh, come up with a new name. Okay. He said, but don't bring me one, bring me 10. Yeah. And I'm looking at him as it 10, 10 names. I said, this has got to be our business. It's got to be something that we fall in love with. Yeah. We, yeah. We really need a name. Ten. Ten. So we go back and I'm sure you've sat around the table and thought, what shall we call this? And you're thinking of names and we're thinking Cougar. Oh, Cougar's a good name. Yeah, yeah, Cougar. Put that on the list. And then, uh, well, Falcon. Falcon, that's a good name. Falcon Sport. Yeah. Put that on the list. Now I've got to take you back to 1943. That's 19- my favorite story. <laughs> <laughs> In 1943, I am eight years old. Yeah. And I want to say, to add to this right now, I can I can put you back 80 years, and it would be the first, first week of July. That was the Bolton holidays when they had uh, events. Yeah. So when we talk about COVID during the war, we couldn't go anywhere either. There was nowhere mm-hmm. to go. And so they had uh, they had events in your hometown. And one of the events that they had in, in the hometown was a 60 yards race for young children. And I was very young. And I was, I say, I was only eight. So uh, 60 years ago, I was going to say 80 years ago, almost to the day. I was entered in that race. Yep. And I won it. <laughs> I, I won it. I had, a, I had a big advantage. I had Foster Spikes. Yes. <laughs> and and I, doubt, I doubt if anybody else in that race had a pair of spikes on either. But uh, whether that was a, a fair or unfair advantage, I, I don't know, but I won the race. And uh, I, I got for my prize. In 1943, World War II, right in the middle of World War II. And uh, what do I get? My prize is a dictionary. And it's a Webster's Dictionary, which is an American dictionary. Yeah, yeah. And I'm saying, guys, where's the football? Yeah. <laughs> well, I... Manchester Jersey. <laughs> That's right. Something. something. No. <clears throat> I get a dictionary. I suppose I could have kicked the dictionary about here and there, but <laughs> no, not a football. So somewhat disappointed, I have a dictionary, an American dictionary. So fast forward now to uh, 1960, we need a name. And my dictionary is here. It's a the side, and I'm thinking, I like the letter R for some reason. Can't explain why. It is strong letter. 
So I open my Webster's American Dictionary at the letter R and start thumbing through. And it doesn't take me long before I come across R, double E, B O K, Reebok. What's that? And it's a small South African gazelle. A gazelle. We're a running company. It's gazelle. Top of the list. That's so great. Reebok goes at the top of the list. We do invent the other eight names, and I take them to the agent and I say, look, here's the 10 names, but we want that one. Yep. <laughs> we want Reebok. We, we, we're already in love with it. We yes. need to be. It's going to be our passion. It's our future. And of course, he's a lawyer, so all he can say is, okay, Joe, we'll see what we can do. Right, right, right. <laughs> it, it, it takes two weeks to go through all the systems they have to go through for the register. Um, but he, 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 he called me back. He came on the phone and said, Joe, you've got your wish. You can have Reebok. There's only okay. a couple of things, and those are okay. Um, except that the, there's a caveat. The registrar said if somebody makes... Is making shoes out of Reebok skin. You can't stop them. Wow. So the chances of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We looked at each other and said, no, nah. I looked at Jeff. That'll never happen. Nobody will ever make shoes out of Reebok skin. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we got Reebok. But he said, because of that, the register said, because of that, we've got to put you in part B of the register. Up until a month before this, I didn't even know there was a register. So, so what? So we go into the B section of the register. Ten years later, the registrar came back and said, we moved you to the A section. Oh, why is that? Well, he said, everybody now knows that Reebok is a sport footwear and the animal, unfortunately, has to come second. Did, did you know at that point, ten years later, that this company is going to be a worldwide known company and is going to create the impact that you have created. No, we, we, we had no idea. We were just happy that we were following a dream that we, we, we were being successful, small, but successful. And we, we were, as they say, we were scaling. <laughs> In wow. my days, we were growing the company, but uh, now they call it scaling. Joe, I have a question, you know, I believe, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, at the time that you were running Reebok, at the time that you were in charge, Reebok reached its highest point, close to $4 billion. What would you say was the main core values that you have instilled in your business making process to get the company to that point? I think the main thing is that uh, even today, not many people know Joe Foster, but millions of people know Reebok. So I think what we instilled in everybody was this is Reebok and you're part of it. You have as much ownership as we do in that name. Yeah. And so people who work with us, work for us, they all felt they were part of that. They were part of Reebok. And I, the, the good thing about a company like Reebok is you can pick this item up and you can feel it. it it's also, it's associated with leading athletes, both men and women. So we had that association. 
And people loved that association. I worked for Reebok. They didn't work for Joe Foster. They worked for Reebok. And, and I think that for me, people loved to work for Reebok. People wow. loved the brand. We got people to love the brand. Wow. You know, there was a story that you shared with me during our um, lunch. And it was the story about how you treated people in the factory and how at one point there was not a lot of work and you guys had to send people home. And when you send people home, you told them that as soon as the work picks up, that they can come back. And every single one of them came back. Can you share what principles, what type of culture did you create within your environment at work that people were in love with Reebok, they were in love with companies' values for them to say, you know what, I will wait, I will go and do some odd jobs, but then when the opportunity presents itself, I'm going to come back and I'm going to be there with you. Well, I referred to this a little earlier when I said the sales team of the company, of a company, just left. We uh, had, a, had a good friend, a, making make friends with people, even, even in sort of uh, competitors. Making friends with people was, was always good for me. Yeah. I didn't want to fight people. I wanted to work with people. And we, we, we could all we could compete, compete in a good, friendly way. Not always is that <laughs> is that happening. However, this um, the man I knew was the head sales at uh, the the company called Lawrence. He uh, he had a good sales team, and they just made soccer boots. That's all they made soccer boots. We made a lot of uh, athletic shoes, running shoes, rugby boots, cycle shoes. We and training shoes. We made training shoes. Everything we made a lot. And he said, look, we only make soccer shoes, but we've got a whole sales team. Why don't we be your distributor for the UK? That made a lot of sense. And uh, for the company, that was great because all our production, all of a sudden, we had no cash flow problems because the production, all the production was taken up by Lawrence Sports. We're going to be our distributors. Yep. Great. Wonderful. So this one, and this work fine for about two years. Unfortunately, uh, the man who owned the company, Harold Lawrence, he decided it was time for him to retire. And he retired and he he put his son-in-law in the company as the CEO. The son-in-law had no idea how to run a company, no idea about uh, footwork. He was an engineer, which is okay. But the worst thing that he did, he just gone on the wrong side of the sales manager, the sales director, who was my friend. And uh, they just didn't get on together. So sales director left, took the whole team with him and went down to Barter. Barter were the biggest shoemakers in the world to set up their sports division. 18 months, that's all that Lawrence lasted. After that, 18 months later, Lawrence just went, down wow. and of course they were our distributors and they right. were going out of business so about 75 to 80 percent of our manufacturing was going wow. to a distributor 
and all of a sudden we we lost it. Um, and they, they stopped paying us because they didn't have the cash. All of a sudden, the cash flow had uh, gone. So I had to. I took a big van, big wagon down down to their uh, their factory and picked up all our shoes that that were not selling because the sales weren't out. So I picked them up and brought them back to our own factory, but we had no production. And that was what you're talking to. What you're talking about is I had to. Uh, I think I had to make redundant probably 60% of our staff. And they were sort of, in fact, one or two said, look, we'll work for nothing. Wow. <laughs> I said, no, no, you can't do that. They, they were family. We, they were all family. They said, you know, we have this problem and uh, we, we're going to get over it. We'll get through it. But right for now, I'm sorry, we're going to have to lay you off. And, but, Everyone, as you said, everyone said, look, okay, we understand. Can we come back as soon as you uh, are back in production, as soon as you get everything right? It took us about three months. That's all. We, we really put together to sell all the, all the product. We, we laid out a plan. We went around to every school, every school within 50 miles, and we made arrangements with, the, with the, the PE teacher, the whoever was in charge of... Uh, sport or we made arrangements and we were selling the shoes to them direct we sold all the shoes direct and we we sold them at a better price than we'd sold them to the distributor who'd gone out yeah, to business. Yeah, yeah. so we actually made more money after this <clears throat> and but in that time um i'd worked on trying to find distribution or trying to find salesmen as, as it happened i found a new distributor but i we also found that because we had these friends, my my friend who'd gone to Barter as a salesman, he said, look, we need some sports footwear product. Can you produce for us? So there were about three or four different manufacturers, different uh, sports people who, who wanted us to make shoes for them. And in no time, we, our factory was full again. And then we, we could start to rebuild the Reebok brand. Joe, take me back to the moment of where you have to let go of 60% of your staff. What What's going through your mind? I mean, that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of responsibility. I mean, these people have families. They have to put food on the table. The holidays are coming around. How do you, one, keep composure, two, not allow your emotional uh, instability to take over and make a wrong decision, so I want to understand what goes through Joe Foster's mind in that specific moment. Well, I think you have to be, it's, it's integrity. You have to be honest. You have to be straight. You have to show them absolutely what happened, what you're facing. You have to be really clear with them. That, look, we value you. We value everybody who works here. And I had to admit I made a mistake. I put so much of our production into one place that I didn't expect at all what happened. Wow. But that's a mistake. So I made a mistake. And I, we have to work on that. I have to work on that. And, you know, give me time. And I'm sorry, guys. You know, we, we can't. There's nothing we can do immediately except 
get on with a new plan and rebuild. And and I think if you show people integrity, you show them that uh, you're not just laying them off. You, you, we can't pay. We have to make we have to make decisions, and some of those decisions are tough. Right. And, and uh, but fortunately, they were in the shoe. We were in the shoe industry, and there were three other shoe manufacturers in in the same town. So there was quite a bit of space for them to be absorbed. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and if they weren't, they could go on to the, uh, they could claim unemployment benefits so they could, they, they could survive. They would, uh, it wouldn't be too bad. But of course, I think the biggest emotion that most of them had was not the fact that they would be losing income, but they would be losing uh, a lifestyle. They they loved being part of Reebok. Uh, it, it was something that they um, they they a lot of these people had grown up with. Uh, we used to have people come in. You know, we used to open the factory at eight o'clock in the morning. That's when the factory started. Eight o'clock in the morning. There would be some people there at seven o'clock in the morning. They came so early. They would make a brew, have tea, have coffee, and sit down, and they would talk, they would read the newspapers. They, it became a, f a family. You know, we, we like to develop it as a family. So what they, made Reebok stand out in culture? What made your employee staff wanting to be there early, wanting to show up, wanting to give their all? How did they fall in love with Reebok, and what did Reebok mean to them? Well, Reebok was something new in, uh, in in the area. We were young, we were energetic, we had ideas, we 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 created that energy. That uh, wow, you know, we're making these shoes and, and they're going around the world. We, you know, we we had a big order from Canada. I think the order we called it bigger, two thousand pairs, and we had to get that order finished, and because it had to get onto a boat. We had to get the order into boxes, big wooden crates, get them down to Liverpool. Liverpool was the dock. And we were running out of time. We were running out of time. And about half the staff stayed on until midnight that very day. They stayed on at midnight so that we could have that collected by whatever transport company at 7 o'clock in the morning in order to finish. And so it was that sort of feeling. They they were all part of it. They all felt part of Reebok. They felt the need, felt the energy, they felt the love. And so it, we were not a big company. We only had 30, 40 people at that time, but they all loved the idea of being part of this brand. I love it, I love it. I wanna take you back, okay, because I want to I want to see your point of view. Do you believe that everything happens for a reason? Do you believe that a man or a woman have a destiny in life? That's a I I, I would like to believe that that's so. And as a personal thing, I don't know whether it affects everybody. Um whether I think uh, people who are entrepreneurs, people who an optimist. To be an entrepreneur, you have to be an optimist. So you look at life 
and you look at well this this is you know what, what's what's happening we we went to um it was an event in Rome at the Vatican. We went to the, to the Vatican to uh, to meet these uh, the change makers, the people who are changing the world, and some great brains there, massive. You know, and they were talking about it. And, and one guy came up with the pessimist and the optimist, and uh, he was saying there are two children, and uh, one of the fathers took his child down on. Christmas Day, all these, in, opened the room with all these presents, just for every present he could think of. Fantastic for this youngster. Great, look at all these. And the youngster burst into tears. And the father saying, why, what's the matter? And he's saying, this, this, look at all these toys. All my friends, they, they're going to come and play with them and they're going to take them. I'm going to lose these toys. And father said, well, really? He couldn't stop him from crying. So we go to the other father. The other father takes his son down on Christmas Day to a, a shed in, in a field. And he opens the shed and it's full of manure. And he takes his child in and his child looks at it and says, Wow, this is fantastic. Look at all this manure. There must be a pony here somewhere. <laughs> Oh man! And that was you know, the, the pessimist and the optimist. The one who is looking at what he's going to lose. The one who's saying, "I'm going to find something." And and I think this is the difference. When you ask, "Does everybody have this? Uh, uh, does everybody have somewhere to go?" I, I think you have to have the optimism. I love it. I love it to see the opportunities. And I think. The pessimist, it's a difficult life. And I, being an optimist, I can't understand it. <laughs> no matter how bad things are. And, and I think if you engender that, and we did it with our, our staff and our people who work with us, that yep. there's a corner up front and it's going to be better even around that corner. We're going to be, so we're always, we're always thinking this is, uh, the, the next step is forward, not back. 100%. I'm just looking at if you never won that race when you were eight years old and never got the dictionary as a gift, would we still have Reebok today? <laughs> I can understand where you're coming from. Yes. I, I, you know, people say, um, you know, luck. And then they talk about luck. And I say, yeah, we had a lot of luck. And they say, no, you didn't have any luck. You worked for it. You you did what you did, and uh, you made it. But you know, I think you still have luck. I think there's some things that happen in time yes. that uh, you have you have no uh, no decisions to make on it. It's there. It happens. So yes, uh, there is. You know, I suppose it's fate. You know, there's some people uh, can't believe they have good opportunities and I think with a lot of people is we all have opportunities but it's a question of whether you see the opportunity yeah and if you don't see the opportunity it goes by and other people who see the opportunity people say you were lucky well you need a lot of luck you do need luck 
like you say, I won that race. Would would uh, would Reebok be here if I had to have uh, won a race, got a dictionary? These are coincidences that happen in your life that you have no you have no control over. <laughs> they they happen in your life, and yet you have to be of a certain mind to see those opportunities, yep. to see what it was. I mean, I I could have thrown the dictionary away and not bother with it again. I could have done all sorts of things, but no, for whatever reason, I had kept the dictionary. It was still there. And I was able to refer to it. And and I, and I think in life, and uh, I, I know you've had some adventures in life, which you, you, you look back on and you wonder how, but it's that persistence. It's that looking forward rather than looking backward that, looking for opportunities and taking chances and taking the risk. But if it, if you don't take it, where are you going to be? You're going to be still in the same place 50 years later. Yeah. You've got to take, you've got to be that optimist and take those opportunities. Joe, if you're talking to a group of pessimists, somebody who does not believe somebody who's negative, somebody who always looks at the, darker side rather than brighter side what advice could you give that person to be able to go to the other side go to the side where there's light where there's rainbow where there's opportunity where there's possibility what would you tell that person to be able to inspire them to give it a try to go from being a pessimist to an optimist well I think that uh, the only way you can do that is to tell them to uh, meet a lot more people, talk to a lot more people, listen to a lot more people, read books of adventure, read those things that have inspired you. You've got to become inspired. Look for inspiration. And I find it difficult to to think that being a pessimist um, that they will be, they will take heed of that. But you can only say to people, look, you know, in this life, you only get one chance at this. You've got to enjoy it. And so look to find something you enjoy. Wow. Whatever it is, look, whatever you're doing. But if you're not going to enjoy it, you're not going to succeed. So look for pleasure, look for fun, look for something that is so. Uh, that, you, that you like I, mean, I get asked quite often what are the three most important things in running a business and uh, I said well first thing is you've got to have fun yes and the next thing is you've got to have a lot more fun <laughs> and third third if you're not having fun get out yeah yeah because if you're having fun it's not working it's something you're loving. You love yes. to do it. And and that doesn't say that every day is going to be fun. No. There's some of those days are going to be absolutely the opposite. They're going to be so difficult. But if you're an optimist, you either obliterate those days, or you turn away and you find where the fun is. You look for the fun. Yes. You look for the energy. And I, and I think that uh, being successful as an entrepreneur one of the things you've got to have is that optimism, is that desire to find your way out of things. We had to change our name at Reebok, and uh, we found a better name. 
And we, yes. we learn that, uh, okay, somebody throws a problem up, somebody throws up something. Uh, you, you can't register that name you have. You've got to do something different. And we we enjoyed the process. We became Reebok. Uh, four years into our business, we received a letter from Adidas, well, the lawyers, and our silhouette on the side of our shoe was two stripes and a T-bar. And uh, the letter said that your two stripes and T-bar, that infringes uh, Adidas's three stripes. Wow. Okay. We're only four years into our business. We're quite small. We read this letter and at first we're thinking, well, what do we do? It didn't take longer than 30 seconds to say, Adidas, no, we're here. Adidas <laughs> have sent us a letter. That's right. Yeah. Adidas are writing to us. We, we're causing them some concern. Wow, isn't that great? What do we do? We'll change the silhouette. <laughs> so wow. we changed it to the vector. And the vector gave, gave us a better silhouette. So it, it's, it's all a matter of how you approach a problem. And... Some, some are difficult, but taking it head on is usually not the answer. Finding a way around it is definitely the answer to most times. It. Yeah. And so I love it. that taught us to, uh, well, to anticipate, to be ready, to almost welcome problems. Because problems mean you're not doing it quite right. You could do it differently. You could be different. And oh. but by being, being different, you will move forward. It's all part of the scaling exercise is to have the problem. Joe, a lot of people see you as their hero. A lot of people look at you in a world of footwear as a hero. I always like to ask this question. Who is your hero? Who inspired you? Who inspires you today? inspired you when you were younger but who is that one hero that you could say that that's the person that you know pushed me to be my best version well for me it's winston churchill um, because winston churchill inspired a whole nation during those really bad uh, days of world war ii i mean the inspiration yep. he gave to people he stood there and told them and you know and i and i think that People looked up to him and thought, well, if he can do it, we can do it. You know, yeah, we're behind you. So he he was a man who could put a whole get a whole nation behind him. And not only a whole nation, I mean he he got the rest of the world behind him. He really inspired. And I and I think if you if you can do that, then then that's wonderful. And so Churchill for me, and reading his uh, reading his, uh, his biographies and whatever. You see how many chances he took. Yes, <laughs> he, he took an awful lot of chances, and he he was willing to do so many things and did so many things in his life. A good inspiration. Joe, do you have a favorite quote or a motto that you live by? I'm just trying to remember what the scout motto is: "Be prepared." Be prepared. I love yeah. it. If you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. That's right. Stay ready. Yes. Stay so ready. Be that is, uh, is, is a very good uh, motto to live by. And uh, having been part of the scout movement, where they do teach you a lot, 
discipline is a good thing. And going into the, to do national service, having having been part of the scouting movement, it it was simple. It was easy. It was like almost the same thing, because that that's where it came from. Scouting yep. movement came from uh, military service, and so uh, I think yes, be prepared is is very uh, very simple. Joe, your story, everything you have accomplished, everything you have done, demonstrates strong leadership qualities. And we know that leadership plays a critical role in success of any organization. What leadership qualities do you believe are essential for effective leading and inspiring a team? Well, I think, again, I think you need integrity. If you have integrity, uh, people will continue to listen to you. If, if they find that you, you say something, then they do something totally different, that's very very difficult to follow something like that so yeah. integrity you, you you need to have that um i'm probably uh what you need to be able to do is to listen listen to other people and encourage other people encourage other people to they you know many people will sit on an idea because they're just that frightened to sort of speak up to tell to tell you what their idea is, and I think you have to uh, you have to encourage that. Yeah, encourage yeah. people. To, yeah, to come on. You know, if you've got an idea, uh, and when even even if it's a bad idea, you don't have to rubbish it. Yeah, <laughs> what you have to do. It, say, oh well, okay. Let's think about that. Let's work on it, and let's turn it in. See, see if we can use that. Yeah, and you usually find that people with ideas they're pretty good and you know you find you can either save money or make a product better make it easier and so uh, encouraging people people who, who work repetitively on something usually find a, a better way of doing it i agree i agree and uh, yeah in 2005 reebok was acquired by adidas how did this acquisition impact the company and what were the reasons behind this decision? Well, for me, I had stepped back from the company by then. And uh, <clears throat> I, I think a company, as it, uh, as it grows, it uh, develops, you need different minds, different ways of looking at it. I, I see myself as a pioneer and an adventurer I'm I'm not a corporate man. I I think you you need different people who are corporate, and and so that you, your company grows and it it can scale and become big. That's okay. But for me, um, for me the energy is different. I, I like the challenges. When you get when you get bigger, the challenges are not for somebody like me. The challenges become either financial or legal. And uh, you need experts. You need to get the expert people. And so you import people. So uh, by the time 2005 came along, Paul Feynman, who uh, was operating as CEO of the company, uh, he he kept coming in and out of the company. He kept deciding, I'll bring a CEO in. And then, then he would come back in and take over from the CEO. So it, it was going in and out of the company. And unfortunately, he didn't find the right man. He didn't find the right man for him to step back and stay back. 
Mm. That's he should have stepped back, stared back. Um, it was his time. I think you've all got to find the time when somebody else can come into the company and do it better. There's a time during a company's growth when you have that energy to take it as far as that next step. But I don't think you can be a pioneer and then also be the man who is a governor to keep things straight and tidy. Gotcha. You're, yep. you're yep. always a pioneer. And so you always want to do things differently. You always want to take things, go in different directions, whereas a company needs that. So when it gets corporate, it needs that corporate uh, organization to keep it going in the right direction. It also needs the the pioneers to be pushing, but not to be operated in the company. Well, and by the time of 2000, well, I think in the late 90s, we, we could see that the company was plateauing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in fact, whilst we were in uh, whilst we were in Rome at the Vatican, I'm talking to somebody and he's saying, don't you think that by now Reebok should be a $50 billion company? Mm. And yes, it should. Whereas it plateaued at four and four at four billion and then went down. So had it had the right people at the top at that time? And I don't think that was me. I don't think I could take it up to 50 billion. It's a different brain, a different operating set. Yeah, I'm the guy that gets us off the ground, that creates a family business, that uh, has that drive, has that motivation. But when you get so big, when you get thousands of, of people in a company, it, it needs a different uh, style different style for me and uh, we we didn't get the right people to go forward so for wow. me the sale the sale to adidas was a fantastic uh sale for the shareholders <laughs> and for the people uh, who would get the money out of it because they were not going forward they needed to change but unfortunately with adidas and uh I love Adidas. I think they're a great company, and I think it's struggling at the moment. But uh, they didn't buy Reebok for to run Reebok as a, as a company. They bought it because Reebok were big in America. They wanted more market of that. Share. Yeah, they wanted a bigger market share for Adidas, and so Reebok went from a four billion down to a one billion revenue company. So for Reebok. That was bad choice for Adidas. It was a good choice, of course. For the shareholders, the shareholders, it was probably a good choice. For me, I'm Reebok, so for Reebok, it was a bad choice. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but now, of course, it's been bought by ABG, Authentic Brands Group. Yeah, uh, Adidas put it on the market. Most analysts were saying it's worth between one and one point five billion. And uh, ABG paid two point five billion because it was done on a bid, and everybody. I knew two or three of the other people who were bidding for the company, and all of them said, "We were nowhere near. <laughs> we were nowhere near two point five billion. Wow! But that that's what happened. And ABG, uh, I mean, they have a different uh, operation." Their yeah. operation is uh, is retail, 
it's working working with is it's licensing it's, it's going really back to when i started i licensed people in different countries i even licensed paul Feynman in america to begin with <laughs> they have a license in operation and we were in india and the, the indian guys they've got a 40-year license 40 years that is incredible yeah but what, what it does do it says look you're you're nearly owning this brand for 40 yeah. years yours you've got the incentive now to put your money into it and to grow it in India. Wow. Um, and so they have thousands and thousands of outlets. And Julie and I, we've, we've traveled down, this year we've traveled down to Australia, we've traveled through India, we've also been in America, we've done Panama, and we're, we're meeting all these different retail groups now who have massive retail outlets so uh, <clears throat> it'll be fall 23 fall of this year before we see any new product that a abg have been involved in all these nice. different because it takes that long for the products to come through but what we will see and what abg are looking for is to have a 10 billion dollar company by uh 25 by, by 2025 so i mean the growth is going to be immense purely yeah. on visibility purely by making the product more available and, and on the uh it in stores <clears throat> so that will happen so when we when we talk about you know should Reebok be a 50 billion probably and and I, and I think that uh, we're going to see a massive uh, massive growth from Reebok. They're already going back into performance, which added us to added us to Reebok out of performance, out of team sports, took them out. They're going back in now. So it and a lot of people still love Reebok. When I when I go to America and I, <clears throat> I'm talking to people, people probably in the late forties, oh Reebok, I remember Pump, I remember yeah. that. I was only a kid and pump came out and I wanted a pair and I couldn't, they were too expensive. My parents said, no, you can't have a pair. But they wanted that pair of pump and they remember those you know, D Brown dunking from the halfway line. They, <clears throat> they remember that. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's, you know, that, that energy is there now. Uh, and I'm quite sure that, uh, that Reebok will be making a very big comeback. I agree. I agree. I have two more questions for you, and I will uh, let you go because I, I could sit and talk with you for, for hours as, as we have done this many, many times. Looking back, is there anything you have done differently during your uh, time when you were leading Reebok? Is there any lessons or insights that you gained that you would like to share with inspiring entrepreneurs around the world? In doing differently or inspiring, I mean, there's a couple of questions in there. <clears throat> doing differently is, is a very difficult uh, question to answer, apart from the fact that <clears throat> we overtook Adidas, we overtook Nike, we became number one. In becoming number one, what would you do different? Not a lot. And I, had my brother survived, he died just when we just when we got the five star shoes and just got into America. If my brother survived, I think there could have been a different way that we we would might have moved, but <clears throat> I had to make decisions. 
uh, on ownership, all all different decisions on how how do we still keep the the, the company going forward? How how can we how can we do that? <clears throat> Especially now we have this great opportunity uh, of coming into the American market. So uh, I, the tough one is when you're an entrepreneur uh, and when you're growing a business and scaling, probably like you've gone through this yourself, scaling your business. I think a lot depends upon the people you're with. I don't believe you can do it alone. I agree. I think you need that somebody else to be very close where you can talk stupid we can go through all the silly things all the well why don't we do this why we do it? and 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 i think that is a release from trying to push things backwards and forwards in your own mind i think you have to have that yes um, and you have to have people you have to have faith in people and i've uh, I've entrusted a lot of people with um, sort of my personal feelings, my, and some let you down. Some, for whatever reason, just take advantage of you. But you have to you have to believe in human nature, and you have to believe that there are people out there who are like you can uh, can can look at things, can look at the horizon, and see what's beyond. Yeah, and the rest of the people. Um, there's one guy in in Reebok, Arnold Martinez, who who saw the the possibilities of aerobics. Yeah, and he was uh, he, he could almost see through walls. You know, his his perception, his marketing, his he turned the company into a woman's company, and that took us from almost a zero to almost a billion in four years. It, yeah, that was incredible. So. Wow. These people, you've got to be able to talk the ridiculous with. You've got to be able to say, "Well, how do we, how do we get to the moon? You know, and what, what, what are we going to do there?" So, if, if you talk beyond uh, the imagination, you can bring things back to reality. I love but it. You, you've taken these extra steps, which say, "Well, yeah." So you are that step further forward than just saying, "Well, what's the next step?" No, no. What's the, what's the leap? You know, it's not the next step. What's the leap? And then we'll take the step when we learn how far we can go. It's, uh, it's yeah. You you got to search beyond that. I think it's search beyond what you see. You've got to go that, and and you can only do that if you talk to people and you have the right people with you, and and then you have a lot of fun trying to get there. Amazing, amazing. My last question to you: What is the most memorable point in your Reebok career that you carry with joy. So what is that one moment in your entire career? If you could just continue to repeat and continue to replay that makes you happy, that makes you feel invincible in a way where you're just unstoppable, gives you the most positivity. What moment would that be? Well, there are a number, but, but the one that peaks out and the one that's really uh, top there is my phone call to Paul Feynman. And I said, Paul, can you go down to the kiosk and get a runner's world and see how we did in the star ratings? Because we needed a five-star shoe. And one hour later, Paul came back and said, Joe, 
Aztec. It got five stars. <laughs> that was it. And it was like, okay, we made it. Yes. <laughs> that was the moment that, uh, that the Reebok was in demand. That, that was the moment that people wanted. And once we got that five stars, we did, didn't just get one, we got three five stars. We got three shoes with five stars, which was incredible. So that, that was probably the moment. Another moment was when uh, I think it's uh, Sports Intelligence came out was Reebok a number one. We had overtaken Adidas, we'd overtaken Nike, and we became number one. I think that's another moment when you think, did we ever? Did we ever think we would do that? Well, and you know, the, those are moments which I, I consider that uh, to be lucky. Lucky to get to that wow. position because it takes more than takes more than skills, it takes more than ideas. It, it takes uh, it's magic. Absolutely, <laughs> it's magic to get to, to a position like that, it's magic. So yes, Joe, I believe your grandfather, your father, your uncle, your brother—they're all looking down and they're smiling and extremely happy with what you have done and how you never gave up on your dream, on your vision, and being a pioneer and taking the company to where you took it. So I just want to say thank you for being an inspiration to me and many others that do have a dream, that do have a vision, and continue to carry on and think, what would Joe Foster do? And how, what would Joe Foster think? And I appreciate you being on this podcast and giving this insight to many, many rising entrepreneurs. Well, Albert, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I know your story. And I know that is also incredible. Incredible in a different way, but totally incredible. And uh, good luck Thank with you. all you do and the future. Appreciate and it's been, you. been a pleasure. Been an absolute we'll pleasure. be talking soon. Yeah, Take we, care. Will be, we will. Bye-bye. <laughs> yes. Bye-bye.